Hello again, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us on this, the latest Motorsport Magazine podcast from London. And this one is a cracker. We have a special guest with us today, backed by popular demand, actually, judging by the number of questions that have been sent in for Pat Simmons, a driving force, of course, behind uh, Schumacher's championship at Benetton, Alonso's championship at Renault, and now a consultant for the Marussia Grand Prix team. Welcome, Pat. Thank you very much. That was all correct, wasn't it? It was. Oh, yes. good. <laughs> sometimes and luckily, I... you didn't mention it goes back a lot further than that as well. <laughs> yes, sometimes I have to ask the Roebuck, um, who is also here. Nigel, our Grand Prix correspondent and editor-in-chief, and also here is, for the first time, welcome Simon Aaron, our features editor, who's come in off the road to join us on the magazine. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, Rob. Okay, Pat, let's start by asking a really simple, straightforward question to which you will have the answer. Who is going to win the Australian Grand Prix in 10 days' time? Well, that's probably the least straightforward question you could ever ask me. And naturally, I don't have the answer. But, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? We go through this sort of false dawn of winter testing. And uh, we all charge around and we moan about everything, you know, tyres are no good, the track's too cold, it's too wet, it's too hot, it's too black, it's too white, I don't know. And uh, we do the best we can, obviously, to make our cars reliable, competitive, raceable, all these sort of things. And we really are working flat out. You know, people in Formula One don't know any other way of working, we're, we're always working flat out. And no matter where we might be in the pecking order, we're just trying to go faster. It's our, you know, our reason for existence. And therefore, it really doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter whether we're at the front or the back, we're still going to work as hard. So, you know, why should we bother about who's quick and who isn't? But, you know, human na nature being what it is, and us all being competitive people, we spend ages trying to analyse what's going on. I mean. We can make total fools of ourselves because we all try and bluff each other. And it's like a, a sort of huge game of chess, really, I think. Yeah. But I, I think we're starting to see a bit of a picture from the, the three tests. Um, and so I, I, I will sort of uh, have a bit of a go at, at estimating where I think people are. Um, now, if you look at the bare facts, I think most people will say, well, Mercedes is looking great. Um, Red Bull don't look quite so hot. And of course, I think that's probably entirely incorrect because Red Bull are the masters of, of disguising their pace. And uh, when we do our analysis, of course, one of the things we're trying to do is to figure out how much fuel is in the car and therefore, you know, how quick they can go and everything. And we've now got to the point where we, we assume that no matter what, the Red Bull is quick. And therefore, we sort of say, well, OK, how much fuel would they have been running to be quick? Yeah. And so therefore, I, I was still sort of putting them at the front. But there is no doubt that the Mercedes is, is fast. Now, I think that those were out and out, uh, I won't say qualifying laps, but pretty, pretty low fuel that um, both Rosberg and, and uh, Hamilton did. Um, but nevertheless, I think they look good. But, you know, I think Ferrari are right there. And surprisingly, I'm not sure that McLaren are. I, I, I see McLaren being a little bit off the pace at the moment, in spite of a few days when they've hit the headlines with the fastest time. Um, 
my estimate at the moment is uh, probably anything up to sort of one and a half percent off the pace. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a long way, isn't it? Of course, I may be wrong. <laughs> yes. Okay. Do you think Ferrari are looking that good, Pat? Yeah, I do. Um, I think both Alonso and Massa, uh, actually, both on the, the long runs and uh, the, the qualifying laps, for want of a better word, because what, what we tend to do is we, we look at when they're doing a really quick lap, and, okay, that, that can be anything from sort of 10 to 30 kilograms of fuel, even 40 kilograms of fuel if they want to hide what they're doing. Um, and, and from that, we try and estimate, the, and of course, you will see it's, it's one lap or it might be one quick lap followed by a couple of slow laps but you know that, that that's that's running you know engine modes that are at the limit it's running drs uh, where allowed etc but then we also look at the the long run pace where the engines will be turned down a little bit generally speaking you don't use drs during the the long run simulations and we try and estimate race pace from that uh, and in both cases uh, in my view, or I should say our view, because it's cleverer people than me who, who do all the analysis. Um, yeah, Ferrari, Ferrari are looking right there, I think. And in real terms, Pat, when you're running around in Barcelona in January, February, and the track temperature is 7, 8, 9 degrees or whatever, and the next major test for you is, you know, Australia, where the ambient's going to be 30, and then Malaysia, where the track temperature might be 45. I mean, how easy is it for you to correlate what you get from the winter tests in cold Europe and make it work in, yeah. in, the, in the tropical climate? It's incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, we, we, we do three tests before the start of the season. And generally speaking, the way you approach these these days is that you try and leave the designers and the aerodynamicists as long as you possibly can to do all the performant parts of the car. And so you generally won't see those until the last test anyway. So first two tests, concentration really is on reliability, it's on systems, it's on procedures, it's making sure everything's good. Uh, in our case, uh, Marussia, new drivers, so a lot of training to do for them. Uh, so you're not too worried about the fact that the tyres aren't behaving um, as they will do, I hope, in Melbourne. Um, but by the time you get to the last test, yeah, you're, you're wanting to find out, you know, how to set your car up, find the sweet spot, really, you know, to see how to get the performance out of it. And I have to say, last week in Barcelona, it was pretty damn difficult because it, it really was a struggle to get the tyres to to last any time at all. We were getting, uh, yeah, even when we were trying to do the sort of qualifying type simulations, we were getting a lot of graining on the front tyres, and if we tried to do a few more laps, the rears would start to grain. Uh, and it really, it was very difficult to work like that, and it all looked a bit disastrous. Um, but if you think back to 2011, when Pirelli first came along, um, I remember uh, uh, I was sort of a little bit more on the periphery of things then, but uh, I remember everyone saying, well, you know, it's going to be five stops in Melbourne, and, you know, can we do three stops, or is that too risky? And of course, it panned out as a race where some people did one stop, majority did too, no problems. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really don't want to paint a, a picture of doom at the moment. I think things will be back to normal. To answer your question, it's difficult, but it doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be like that race time. Pat, Pat this latest generation of Pirellis, um, 
I mean, I, and every year there's a problem with testing in low temperatures and where are we, where are we. Have they been more of a problem this year than, uh, than you've encountered in the past? From a Mauritian this, this, this yeah, point of view, absolutely, because we really? didn't go testing last year, no, which no, I think no. was a damn good no, idea, and I'd recommend <laughs> it to everyone. <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, yeah, we, I mean, I say we didn't go testing. We did do one test of the old car, of course, last year. And, and yeah, the tyres do seem to have been a bit more tricky. Um, but no more tricky than they were in 2011. So, you know, the 2012 winter tyre was probably a, a little bit uh, easier to use at the low temperatures. But, you know, uh, it, it is probably 10... Well, I guess in Melbourne... Um, Looking at the weather at the moment, uh, it's been really hot there, but I, I think looking at the next week, it's sort of back to average, but that should still see track temperatures 40, 45, uh, and I, I really do expect the tyres to, to work quite well at that sort of track temperature. Was it um, Jean-Éric Verne who described them as cauliflowers? <laughs> cauliflowers. I thought it was a, a, a really lovely graphic image. Uh, yes, I'd love to know how he arrives at that simile. Though, yes. so, well, yeah. uh, well, it is a bit crumbly, the top of a cauliflower. <laughs> True, it? yes. Um, it's a real shame it's not television, but by the way, because Pat, being an engineer, you know, has brought these rather impressive looking blue and red graphs with him, which he's referring to. I don't. What are, the, what are these graphs, Pat? Well, these are really, as I say, clever people work out the, uh -huh. uh, our estimate of qualifying pace and race pace based on the, the data from last week. And I knew you'd ask me, so I thought, well, rather than sound a complete idiot, I'd only sound half an idiot, but at least having some data in front of me. It's me who sounds like the idiot. It's my job, Pat. <laughs> OK. Um, Let's move on, because uh, Simon has very kindly um, jotted down some topics for us here. And uh, this one I think is interesting, is, is how soon would a, uh, a Formula One team start working on a 2014 car and kind of give up on the 2013 car? W what point, does it depend on which team it is? I, I'm sure it does. Um, it's a very interesting question because, of course, it's a huge problem for all the teams, but for, for small teams like ours, um, it, it's extremely troublesome. It really does keep me awake at night. Um, to answer the first part of the question, I mean, even at Marussia, we started doing some CFD studies um, around last September. So, uh, you know, fundamental things like the, the front wing width has changed and the rear beam wing has disappeared and the top rear wing is a little bit smaller. So we started looking at those fundamentals in, in CFD. Uh, we have already run what I'd call an interim car in the wind tunnel. Really? Uh, it's not the full model yet, but it, it's again, it's got uh, dimensionally correct components, if you like, added to our, our current car. Uh, and we switched to, to full wind tunnel testing of that uh, of the 2014 car in um, uh, about six weeks or so from memory, six to eight weeks, something like that. Um, now we will keep uh, a 2013 model sitting in the model shop as, uh, as fully assembled as we can, so that we can perhaps try and do a little bit of work on it, but very, very difficult. Um, the, the task is enormous. It's much bigger than we've had for many years, but the time is no different, uh, nor the number of people. Um, so even things like uh, front impact test, you know, the, the, the one thing that's been quite nice with the, the 
I'd say the current generation of, of Formula One cars with a very high nose is that it's quite a nice structure for a, a frontal impact. Whereas with the low noses, it's quite an offset load. So, for example, we're, we're already working on that and we're, we're making dummy noses to, to start impact testing, even though we don't know what the final shape will be. Uh, so it's already taking a... I'd say by the time we're, we're sort of into the first couple of races, at that point we'll have be more people working on 14 than 13. Mm. Um, which, of course, is not desirable when you're trying to fight for position. And, you know, I, I think in Mauritius we will be fighting for position this year. Well, and, w and where are you with engines for 2014? That's, that's, yeah, that's there the there is. Um, when I say we're working on it, there is a little bit of a gap between the rear bulkhead and the gearbox <laughs> at the moment. That's, that, that's true, and it does make life a little bit difficult. But, um, you know, the Formula One community is perhaps not as... Um, mean as you might think and and uh, we have had a little bit of assistance just helping us on things like cooling uh, and what have you but uh, the target I set for uh, for having a 2014 engine contract signed uh, was actually May 2012 so we're a long long way past that without without having an engine. Pat, you've got a, um, Marussia's got a technical partnership with McLaren. Are you, are you using McLaren's tunnel? Or are you yeah, we are. So yep. I, mean, I mean, how much, I mean, how's, and obviously they're going to be using that a lot during the course of the year for the same reason, because they've got a radical rule change to deal with for 2014. I mean, how much time are you going to be able to get in that? Will you get enough? Well, uh, lots of questions in there. But the first thing is that they're not using it. Uh, McLaren actually used Toyota tunnel, um, as do Ferrari. They, they, there are two tunnels at the old, Toyota Formula One facility in Cologne. Um, Ferrari used one, not quite full time, but pretty well there, and McLaren the other. Uh, so there's plenty of time in the tunnel at McLaren, but you know, wind tunnel testing is a very expensive uh, proposition. Uh, and at Marussia, as part of our uh, arrangement with McLaren, they've actually been very good to us and they've given us more tunnel time this year than we had last year um, at the same sort of rolled-in cost of our contracts. So I'm, I'm very, very pleased about that. But still, we are running uh, sort of two weeks in four and we run 80 hours a week. So you know, compared to the teams that are running 24-7, um, it, it really is is quite difficult. What 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 we do in a month, they do in a week in, in round numbers. This is Man United in QPR, isn't it? It's more like Man United in Brentford, I think. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, that was a football I, uh, reference. I think if we, if we look at QPR's owner, I think that their, their Formula One team is using an awful lot more wind tunnel time than we are. So, uh, and I'm a Norwich supporter, as you well know. <laughs> OK, fine. Uh, that's the last football reference we'll be making today. But it, the inequality is pretty um, spectacular, isn't it, between the front row and the back row? Yeah, it is. Uh, in every respect, you know. Um, I mean, they say it's tough at the top, and it, and it is. But what they don't say is it's a hell of a lot tougher at the bottom. And, uh, you know, this year, uh, the, the new teams, as they, they st still referred to, no longer ha have the comfort of the... the column three money from, from Bernie. Um, the, the new teams came in under the uh, Concord Agreement that has uh, recently expired uh, and under that Concord Agreement there was, uh, there was an amount of money set aside for the new teams, uh, irrespective of 
where they were in the in the championship if they moved up then uh, of course it, it got a lot more which is why the 10th place is something that's been talked about a lot but um, that's no longer there so uh, it's uh, you know it, it, it does get even tougher it really does mm. well, I mean it's not the most uh, welcome news either when Bernie says I want 20 cars <laughs> in other words <laughs> well I, I, I think if you're a Red Bull or Ferrari you actually don't care when he says that but if you're a Marussia or Caterham exactly, or, or, yeah. or what yeah. have you and, and of course you know we, we say Marussia and Caterham but you have to remember that I think uh, move outside the, the top four uh, actually I'd even say the top three and, uh, and I think every team is in um, it's on tenterhooks for one reason or another and outside the top four it, it's financial mm. Mm. And, and of course one of the things with a small team like, like uh, Marussia is that uh, because we're small we're able to contain our costs so you know if the money isn't there we can, we can pull our horns in a little bit but if you have a big operation um, Lotus uh, at Enstone for example you know it's very very difficult because your, your, your overheads and your, your fixed costs are just enormous Pat um, <coughs> there are very very few quite small changes between last year and this year as regards the regulations um, do you foresee a year similar to last year or do you think that that for example the DRS change and the, the step nose I mean will they are they significant changes or not I, I think in the overall scheme of things I'd say no they're not significant um, you know significant is going to a v6 turbo um, with a spoonful of fuel to run it on uh, that's significant these are, you know, they, they are evolutionary changes, and when you look at the cars, they are evolutionary as well. Um, that's not to say there isn't some interesting innovation out there, and of course the, the passive DRS, um, which Lotus first sort of brought to the scene last year, is something a, a few people are working on, um, and a few people are, are sort of saying, well, actually, we're, we're not even going to look at it because it is going to dive divert too much attention from the, the problem of getting a 2014 car going and doing the, the basic work on the 13. So th there's still innovation out there and there's still, you know, absolutely gorgeous detail in the, the aerodynamic um, subtleties of the cars. So that, that work continues. You know, while there's 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week and enough electricity to run a wind tunnel, those cars will evolve. Um, the, I read something about the Coanda effect, which I thought was a Le Carre novel, but apparently it's to do with... Um, what is it to do with? <laughs> it's it's well, the exhaust gases <laughs> and the downforce, isn't it? It is. Isn't it? it, it, it well, it, it's isn't a bit it? of a, a buzzword at the moment, of course, but uh, it, it was named after a, a guy by the name of Henri Coanda, who, who was, I think, Romanian by birth, but uh, spent most of his life in Belgium. Belgium and he was... Uh, an aerodynamicist, actually, he, he even produced some very novel aircraft, in, including what some people might regard as the first jet aircraft. It, it wasn't a jet engine, but it was a, it worked on reaction, uh, which was very interesting. But but among the many things he discovered as an aerodynamicist was this effect, which was named after him, which is really it describes the propensity of a, a stream of fluid, be it air or liquid or exhaust gas to adhere to a curved surface and uh, probably the best way to sort of illustrate this although some might argue it's not 
fully coander effect, and, and it is true, but we won't get too technical now. But if you, uh, if you run a tap and you've got a stream of water falling from the tap into the sink and you take a, a spoon and uh, f you introduce a sort of convex uh, face of the spoon into that stream of water from the side, that water will tend to curl round the spoon and divert off to the side. Now, uh, some people say that's not true coander effect because of surface tension and everything, but oh no, we're not going to get but technical. For a family show. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> illustration. <laughs> so, but, 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 but just briefly, I mean, isn't that what Williams were doing and, and it was very quickly protested? Have I got this right? Uh, no, that, that oh, was slightly okay. different because the, the, this effect um, really has been used for, for quite a while now. Uh, in fact, since the, the, the FIA um, required the exhaust outlets to be in a position where they hoped they wouldn't influence the, the um, aerodynamics. Of course, the aerodynamicists said, ah, oh, but Mr. Coanda knows different, and he did. Uh, and. Uh, so really, it, it, it's it's just about that. Now, now the sort of controversy over Williams and indeed Caterham was that when the FIA uh, determined that the exhaust outlet had to be in a, a certain position, which they hoped would not influence aerodynamics, they also said that uh, you can't have anything in the the plume, which is the, the, the plume of exhaust gas coming out, which may divert that plume of exhaust gas or ingest it into a, an aerodynamic device or anything like that. Uh, and what both Williams and Caterham did was they, uh, they very carefully placed um, a little, um, let's call it a turning vane, which was just sort of within the, the geometric regulations, but outside this sort of catch-all which said you can't uh, divert the air to and, and re-ingest it. So uh, it was determined to be illegal. Already. Is there anyone still awake? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, sorry about that. Yes, sorry, we're with you, we're with you. Um, can we, let's move away from technology for a minute and talk about drivers, because I think, you know, people tend to find drivers slightly more exciting, or at least the non-technical of us. And um, Simon's given me a note here saying, you know, would, would you have signed uh, Halkenberg and not Perez had you been at McLaren? And it's something that quite a lot of people are talking about. If I'd been at McLaren, yes, I, I would have gone the Hulkenberg group. I, I think he's, uh, uh, I think he's a pretty good driver. Watched him, you know, for a long while. European Formula Three, um, same time as Vettel, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, and you know, he 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 was a, a good racer, good speed, but good ability to race. He's, I think, shown um, well in Formula One and occasionally extremely well. Uh, I, I think he's a great driver, and uh, I think, you know, with the sort of scene that there was at that time, I think that would have been my first choice, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, won, at every, he's won at every level. He's, I know it's so fragmented now on the southern slopes of the nursery formula that it's hard to tell who's good and who's not, but you know, dominated formula BMW, won the F3 Euro Series, having gone off to do A1 GP in the meantime and blitzed that, won GP2 Series at the first attempt, scored... 60 odd more points than his teammate Pastor Maldonado who's in his third season you know he's got a fantastic track record there's nothing about his junior record that says anything other than the fact he's a potential star no that, that, that's right and I agree with you it, it's difficult sometimes to to judge from the sort of junior record it's not always the obvious ones who come to the front 
But uh, what I did like about him was, you know, I remember watching uh, on, on TV some of the, the European F3 rounds and just thinking that I was a racer. And yeah. uh, I think he still is, you know, and we've seen a couple of occasions of that, particularly in Brazil, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, we all like that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> the more the merrier. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was much easier identifying junior talents when they're all in Pat Simmons' Royal RP24s, wasn't it? Or <laughs> RP26s. <laughs> Okay. Pat, when I was talking to um, Anthony Davidson, we were doing the preview for the, of the season of the magazine, and that was before the first test, before even before the first, before Harris, and I said, right, if you're betting now, who's going to be world champion this year? And he immediately said, Battle. He said, and I said, why? And he said, because they've still got the blown floor, and I just think Red Bull will always make a better job of that than their opposition and Vettel has got a handle on how to drive a blown floor car um, you know certainly better than Mark. There's something in that um, you know the the, the subtleties of these blown floors are are, are, are pretty intriguing um, you know we, we we've just getting into it at, at Marussia we're, we're a bit behind on these things because you know it takes us a little bit longer but um, you know, a lot has to come from the engine manufacturer to get the the exhaust blowing effect, and uh, of course, the the other three, uh, not Cosworth, the other three have been at this for for a while now, and Cosworth have actually done a super job for us over the the winter. Really, really impressive. Uh, you know, again working on a, a shoestring, um, but they, they they really have, I think, caught up a little way, and it's up to us to to exploit that. But yeah, along the way, you you have to learn that the, the the tricks of the trade, um, both as an engineer, how to e exploit the, the exhaust effect as best you can, and as a driver. Mm. And of course, uh, it was interesting actually, at Hereth, uh, I wandered up to the chicane just to listen to the cars. Uh, I'm, I'm not a great believer in watching cars, you know, people watch them and say, oh yeah, it was understeering here and oversteering there. Well. Actually, the way the tyres were in Hareth, actually, you could actually see that. But, but generally speaking, I think it's very hard to, to tell that. Well, you can tell a bit about the precision of the driver and everything. But what you can do is you can listen. And you can listen to when people can get on the power, and you can listen to what's going on under braking. Uh, and it was very, very interesting. You know, the, the, um, the, the technique now is really to, to try and leave all your shifting to, to the end uh, and you know there's several reasons for that to, to keep the exhaust gases flowing. So uh, has Vettel learned that better than Weber? Um, I'm not convinced of that because I, I think it's very interesting when when the blown floors first came along I think it was Weber who exploited them first because he realized that actually there was a way of, uh, of using a different line which allowed you to, to maybe go in a little bit slower but get on the power earlier uh, and therefore get the blown effect, the full blown effect rather than just the the, the overrun effect which uh, is the other area people are working on. So, um, you know, I think Vettel's just a damn good driver. I don't think that it, it, it's necessarily that he's learnt how to exploit that, that particular effect better. But I, I disagree even further because I think Alonso's going to be champion. Well, yeah, I do too. I, and actually, at, at the Hall of Fame, I was talking to Stefano uh, Domenicali, and he said, "Quite, I think he was sort of he was being light-hearted, but he was, I think he was sort of half serious." He said, "Actually, the, the the danger with having Alonso is that 
is shaking from your mind, well, we get the car sort of fairly close, you know, he'll do the rest. And he said, and of course, you can't think like that. You know, we've got to think in terms of giving him a better car. But he said, I just think the guy is so good that it, it, you can, that is a trap you can start to slide into if you're not careful. Yeah. Uh, I bet you I never mean, thought that was Schumacher and Alonso, did you? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> I think, you know. No, no. It, what, what, what you did know with him was that if you were having an off day, and, you know, championship teams have off days, 2005, 2006 with Fernando, we, we had days that were not as good as others. What you did know with him was that he would, um, he'd find that little bit extra that, you know, that, that brought you back up to uh, a good level of competitiveness again. Um, I, I, uh, I can imagine Stefano saying that, but I can't imagine Pat Fry saying it. No, 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 and I'm going to say, he was grinning when he said it. Neil, I mean, he obviously, he knew he wasn't making a serious point, but he just said, he, he said, when you've got a driver that good, it's always in your head that you sort of, well, we've got an advantage to start yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, so. it, it, it is true. and. Uh, yeah, I, I well remember in the days when uh, we were talking initially about resource restrictions, you know, and trying to, to uh, limit the spend in, in uh, Formula One. And, uh, of course, Flavio Briatori, who was my boss then, was saying, oh, well, you don't want all this technology, it's far too expensive, etc., etc., etc. And several people pointed out to him that, of course, he'd decided to spend an awful lot of money on the driver to find three tents, which is quite true. <laughs> Um, well, while we're on drivers, let's talk about Max Chilton, um, seeing as Marussia, etc. Um, we have to assume that the bulk of the people listening do make these connections, otherwise we'll spend all afternoon explaining them. Um, he, in my view, he's received rather a lot of unnecessarily mean press, actually. I mean, OK, he's paying for his drive. This is hardly anything new. I mean, um, it's, not, it's not something that suddenly happened in motor racing. Tell us what what you would think about him so far. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, there's been a, a lot of slating of the the pay drivers, but you know, they they are a fact of life, whether you regard it as unfortunate or fortunate. Um, I think we'd we'd all love to see you know uh, something like athletics, where you know, just pure talent will always come to the fore. But that's not the way it is in motorsport, uh, and. I don't really know whether you can ever change that. Um, you know, even going back to basics, uh, I spent many years in Formula Ford, and, and certainly if you had a bit of money, and if your yep. dad was prepared to put some money in, you were more successful than the, than the kid who, who wasn't. And I can look back in those days, and I can think of people um, like Terry Gray, for example, who was a, you know, a damn good Formula Ford driver who I certainly thought would go all the way but he dropped out because he didn't have the money and there were others who I, I think you know managed to reach their own level of incompetence quite quickly so um, there's nothing new in it uh, and uh, I, I think it is a little bit unfair that uh, these guys are getting slated because you know Max is a competent driver he, he has gone through you know the, the junior formulas with some credit and uh, he deserves his place in Formula One uh, as much as, as many. Now, does that mean that there isn't some kid out there who deserves it more? I don't know, and, and I don't think we the ever will know. The answer probably yes. But yeah, the answer is probably yes. St statistically, the answer must be yes, mustn't it? I think in Max's case, he got 
pushed a long way forward very quickly because there was the wherewithal there to do it. But my belief is that in 2012, he sort of caught himself up. And last year in GP2, his, his racecraft, which had arguably been one of his weaker points hitherto, was was great. And he was, you know, if he, if he qualified third or fourth, he'd race for third or fourth. He didn't, we wouldn't slip backwards. And, you know, he controlled a couple of races, difficult tracks, Budapest, Singapore, where he scored his two wins. Yeah, you know, his uh, entire strategy was very good. I agree. I mean, Singapore, I think he was outstanding that weekend. And uh, and that is not an easy circuit. You know, it's, it's so easy to drop it there. And, and of course, in GP2, it, it does seem that to win the championship, you need to sit there for three years. And, Unless you, know, you make it Hulkenberg. Yeah. All of his hands. So, uh, these, these days. <laughs> so, Max has done pretty well, I think, you know. How much has your, sort of your optimism for the year ahead increased since um, Bianchi well, came aboard? Well, I think uh, I am reasonably optimistic for the year. You know, we, we, the, the, the whole um, sort of ethos of, of Marussia is to, to have steady growth towards respectability, um, albeit on... Uh, about two and sixpence, but you know we, we will try our hardest to, to to do that, and I think that well let, let's see in uh, in Australia, but I I'm certainly hoping that when you compare qualifying times in in Melbourne this year with qualifying times in Melbourne last year, I think you'll find that Mauritius stand out in a, a class of their own for improvement. How is it for you on a personal level? I mean, you've chased world titles with Michael Schumacher and Benetton. You've chased world titles successfully again with Fernando Alonso and Renault. How is it for you now when you I mean, your realistic goal is kind of beating Caterham to 10th place in the Constructors' Championship to kind of get yourself motivated for that? Uh, it, it's, uh, it's no different at all. Um, no different at all. I, I think the job is harder. Uh, in many ways, it's more interesting, and uh, yeah, the, the sort of the fight is uh, definitely. I think it's stronger than than ever. And what um, of Mr. Bianchi and what you've seen so far? Well, I, I, I tell you what, I've never seen anything happen so fast. Um, <laughs> it, it was absolutely incredible, um, and I'm not exaggerating that you know from beginning to end that was about 24 hours. Um, when Rosier was unable to take the seat for financial reasons, and, and you know we had no option over that, uh, we were sort of casting around for for what was going on. There were names in the frame. There were names with money. There were names that would drive for free. Who were pretty experienced. Um, the Bianchi thing really only arose when. He didn't get the Force India seat. And I don't think I was alone in, in sort of almost thinking that was a fait accompli. I, I just thought that that was what was going to happen. It seemed to fit into the big picture of, of uh, Force India changing to Ferrari engines, etc., etc., etc. So all of a sudden he was free, and all of a sudden we had a free seat. Um, now, two and two doesn't always make four, but in this particular case, um, there, there was a... A quick phone call to um, Andre Cheglikov, who's the owner of Marussia, and he said, no, that's what we should do. And we said, well, that means we're going to have even less money than we thought we had. And he said, yep, so you're just going to have to try harder, aren't you? So <laughs> and that's the way it ended up. And, and uh, honestly, that, that, that whole deal was done in about 24 hours. 
we did the seat fit in, in Barcelona on Friday night. Uh, he went out on Saturday and I have to say he, he thoroughly impressed me. Um, now of course he's not a total rookie, you know, he, he'd done his Friday sessions and, uh, with Force India and everything and, and it showed, you know, because he, he was straight into the procedures and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I'm impressed, um, and I, I think he, he's just what we needed in the team. He'll push Max, Max will push him. Um, yeah, very pleased about it. Um, Pat, this, this being something of a history magazine, apart obviously from its contemporary content, we tend to get questions that take us right back in time. Are you ready for this? I doubt it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'll tell you that. It comes from Cameron McCauley, as one of our listeners, readers, and uh, he he wants to know from you what features made the the Tolman uh, 183 so fast at the Rio test that it forced the other teams to copy you. Oh, I do love this question. Good. <laughs> I'm, do, do you know what? I am so pleased you love it. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I mean, this this was uh, really really was one of the, the, the greatest uh, times of my career because you know uh, for. I guess we have to fill in a little bit of the history without going on too long. But but in uh, Tolman had come into to Formula One in '81, um, qualified I think only twice in the entire season um, with a car that was known as the the General Bolgrano or the Flying Pig. <laughs> uh, you know, it it, it wasn't. Uh, there was not much affection for the car, let's put it that way. Um, that car carried on into 82, uh, where it qualified, it, it raced, but it, it, you know, it only once did it even look vaguely like it was going to get a point. Uh, it got the fastest lap at Brands Hatch, didn't it? It did get yes. the fastest lap at Brands Hatch, in, in, which in, could in, be a in whole novel circumstance. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, quickly changing the subject, uh, we, we, um, for 83, there was an entirely new set of rules. The, the ground effect cars were outlawed, and the, it was the first generation of the flat bottom cars. That, you know, essentially, we, we still have flat bottom cars today, albeit slightly differently. And um, Rory Byrne and myself were, were sort of um, looking after Tolman design at that time. And we really just sort of looked at the rules and just applied an awful lot of lateral thinking. And we produced a car that, that had just oodles more downforce than any of its contemporaries. Um, a very odd-looking car, but it exploited every little loophole in, in the rules. And of course, life was very different then to, to, to the way it is now, because if you do anything like that now, you have a, a load of lawyers from the other teams who are inspecting your car. Whereas in those days, you know, the other chief designers and technical directors, or, or whatever we called ourselves in those days, um, would come along and say, Bloody hell, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, I really like that. Well done. And then next week, they'd have the same thing on the car. Um, <laughs> so yeah, simple, it was really. A, it was yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was great fun. And, and it was a supercar. It was very, very fast in Rio. Now, the other thing you have to remember is that in those days, we used to test for two weeks solid in Rio before the race. Now, the, 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 the 183, um, as that car was known, was a very, very difficult car to set up. When you got it right, stunningly fast. Now, two weeks of testing, you get it right. But uh, after that, it, it, it was a very tricky car. When, when we got it working, when we got it set up right, it, it, was, it flew, but it, it, its sweet spot was absolutely tiny.
But I love that question. That's, that's really <laughs> uh, Thank you very much, Cameron McCauley, for making Pat Simmons grin like a Cheshire cat. But actually, I don't think you told us what you did to the car. Well, it was the... You the, said you added loads of downfall. Yeah, by, by exploiting the rules, by looking, by, by really a, a lot of lateral thinking. Uh, you know, the cars in those days were, were pretty conventional. They had side pods, they had little wings on the front, they had a, a slightly bigger wing on the rear, uh, uh, and that was it. This thing had a, a full-width front diffuser. It had an enormous 140-centimetre-wide uh, wing over the engine because there was a little bit of the rules there that they'd forgotten to cover. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a great car. <laughs> He's still grinning. I love it. <laughs> OK, let's, we, we, ha, we do take uh, our readers' questions for obvious reasons. And um, the next one uh, comes from uh, Martin Robinson, and it's back to the drivers. Um, and a lot of people often ask this, but we, we will ask it this time. Um, he wants to know really whether you've, you've, who was better, Alonso or Schumacher? Is it possible to answer this question or not? It's not really, is it? The, the short answer is no, uh, and I guess I, I've been asked it so many times. Um, well, yes. It, it's, uh, and Senna, of course, you now I work with him, uh, and I'm often asked to, to compare them. And because they're, they're basically a decade apart, each one, it's very hard because what's required of the drivers is different. But the thing that they they all had was this sort of incredible drive, you know, this incredible self-belief. Um, where was it strongest? I don't know. I, I, I have to say that with, with Michael, he was probably the first driver who really understood about attention to detail. And, uh, of course, that's a given now in terms of fitness. Well, you think and over and above... People like Senna and Prost. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, Senna, absolutely. It wasn't until much later in his uh, career that he really started to, to think about these things. If you remember when he drove for us at Tolman, mm. you know, the guy was so unfit. He, he first race he collapsed. Kyle Army, I remember he had yeah, to be lifted out of right, the car, exactly. didn't he? Yeah. Now you know that would never happen with Michael. Before he got in a Formula One car, he was going to be fitter than anyone else, and and that means that you know you can drive that car at ten tenths all the time. So uh, you know there's a, there's certainly a tick of respect for Michael in in that aspect, that, that attention to detail. But so hard to answer the question. They're just they're all you know on a plane above the others, and that makes it very difficult to to judge. Can I can I just uh, a little Senna thing? Uh, everyone always says, you know, 1984 Monaco Grand Prix. If the chequered flag hadn't come out, Senna was going to win. But I believe that he'd actually tweak the suspension, and the teams teams view was he probably wouldn't have finished that race. So the, the fact, you know, the, the I know it's hypothetical, but yep. in all likelihood, he wouldn't have won. Uh, well, now. It is hypothetical, but you see, when you say in all likelihood, that's a sort of, you're starting to put statistics into it then, so are we talking balance of probability or what? That'll do, balance of probability <laughs> the fact, is The fun. fact is that, yeah, he, he had clouted the, the kerb a little bit hard, and one of the front rockers had a crack in it, which we found after the race. Uh, I honestly don't know whether it would have finished the, the race or not. I mean, the, the loading was quite low, obviously it was wet, but uh, another clambering over the kerbs might have been one too many for it, that's for sure. One more question from our readers. This comes from Steve and Jane. I don't get many ladies asking questions on this podcast. Anyway, we have now. Um, and Steve and Jane want to know whether the new regulations for 2014 will allow people like you to be more innovative, give you a bit more freedom, or are we still going to be 
very, very prescriptive with the new cars. No, I, I think unfortunately, you know, it, it's interesting. We were just talking about a, a major uh, change of rules in uh, the, that uh, uh, allowed the the tollman in '83 to to really just completely move from the back of the grid to the front of the grid, and, and it's rather a romantic notion that that could happen again. But unfortunately, life's so different now. You know, th that was in a time when a total team was 60 people, you know, that's designing the car, building the car, racing the car, uh, and therefore, you know, you could think out of the box and you could maybe outwit other people. But when you're, you know, you're trying to, ha as a small team, I mean. But now, um, a small team, Russia is 130-odd people, um, trying to compete against teams that are 650 people there's just so much again it's this attention to detail and, and you know the, the absolute groundwork that's done on everything it's, it's no longer um, engineering intuition it, it's pure science uh, and science requires monkeys operating computers and things you know it's uh, it, uh, it's a lovely romantic notion to think that it could turn the, the grid upside down but I, I, I'm afraid I doubt it will in fact it can do the opposite yeah. is it isn't isn't there the slightest ray of hope that some engineering genius will come up with some blindingly great idea that Yes, there is. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let, let, yes, yeah, so let's not kill the idea stone dead. But but equally, remember that um, I've, I've actually got a set of the 1983 technical regulations, and uh, ah, I can't remember how many pages it is now. But it, it's very, very few. You know, very few. The, the bodywork regulations. You know, it's sort of like uh, a few paragraphs. Whereas now. Crikey, Article Three just goes on and on and on, and and the entire technical regulations well over a hundred pages and then there's an appendix of about 80 pages and and there's technical directives which run into the hundreds of pages which you have to add to it so everything's a lot tighter now than it was then everything's more prescriptive so again you know it's, it just makes it that much harder to to really make a breakthrough uh, and unfortunately also you, you get the, the philosophy change you now as i said in in 83 you know, uh, Patrick Head looked at our car and said, that's a damn good idea. Ours will be like that in Long Beach. And it was. Um, these days, as I say, you know, it's lawyers, it's uh, yeah. frequent trips to Paris, which I know all about. And uh, It's a bit like life itself, uh, really. I mean, well, from your point of view, doing what you do, was, was, it, was it more fun? Um, no, it may not have been. No, it, uh, it, was, it, was it more satisfying, less satisfying? No, I don't think it was. It, 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 it was probably more fun because life was more fun then, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, or yeah. Or, or maybe it was just I was 30 years younger and <laughs> <laughs> thought of that little fact. You know? yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but no, I, I think, you know, I, I am a, a professional engineer uh, uh, and I'm an academic. Uh, and I used to sometimes find it very frustrating that we couldn't use science in, in those days. Uh, and I do enjoy the fact that, you know, it is real engineering these days. In fact, it, it's real leading-edge engineering. So, as an engineer, I'd say it's much more fun now. Um, racing was probably more fun then. Pat, I mean, if, I mean, it's, we don't know how you would impose a budget cap, but if you could impose a budget cap, would you fancy the idea of saying, that, right, you've got that to spend, here are the regulations, this wide, this high, this weight, this long, that's it? 
If it runs on gravy, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I like it. Um, the only thing that, that you've always got to think of unintended consequences. Um, in, for the 2009 regulations, myself, Rory Byrne and Paddy Lowe mo wrote most of the, the bodywork regulations, the aerodynamics, and it was a, it was a great lesson in unintended consequences because we left little areas where we thought, you know, people should work on this, work on that, and boy, did they grow. Uh, and there were certainly things that, you know, we hadn't thought of at the time. There always will be. And if you do have a, a budget cap and then very free rules, you'll certainly get some innovation, you'll get some great ideas and everything. The trouble is that what do you want? Do you, do you want innovation? Do you want cars that look interesting or do you want good racing? And I think the answer is most people want good racing and I think the engineers actually, oh, I'm going to be shot for this, but I think they have far too much say in, in, in what's done. So. If we had this this sort of nirvana of a, a, a budget cap and a very loose set of regulations, there is no doubt that someone will get it right, someone will get it wrong, uh, and there'll be intermediate steps along the way. Now, having if the budget cap is a sensible budget cap, it means you're not going to have the money to sort of say, oh, God, we got it wrong, that's the way to do it, let's do it all again. You, you can't, you've run out of money, and therefore you've locked in that performance for a year or so. Uh, and that doesn't lead to good racing. What leads to good racing is not having rules that change very often until we all um, sort of gravitate towards this sort of single point of excellence, or as close as we can get to it, uh, and the cars become more equal, and then you get good racing. We sure have got good racing, haven't we? Yeah, we, we have. You know, we've, we've had relatively stable rules. Um, we do have, uh, you yeah, know, we've got great tyres for racing because it, it allows the, the difference performance profile. And, and that's something we'll see in 2014 that I think will make the racing good. We'll, we'll see, because you have limited energy, you know, you, you don't really have as much energy as you want to, to race all the time. People will use it in different ways. So you'll get a different performance profile. You know, someone will choose to go faster at the beginning of the race, slower well, at the end. This is because of the smaller fuel tank. But, yeah, but I Pat, I mean, that was what the you know the Rosbergs and the the Burgers nobody hated about. The, there was the only thing they hated about the the last turbo era, the very yeah, idea of. Yeah. You know, the, the the difference having I think, to cruise when yeah. you wanted to race, yeah, but, but it's what we do at the moment. Yeah, we, do, we well, don't put, it, we no, don't put in the full amount of fuel. No, that's perfectly true. Um, yeah. And the big difference is, I think, you know, with Keki's time and Gerhard's time, was that it, it wasn't a very exact science. You know, and and there was a danger of running out of fuel and things like that. You know, cars don't run out of fuel anymore, and they won't do in 2014 because we can manage the situation so well. Yeah, yeah. I think I just think for a lot of people, you know, a lot of fans, the the whole idea of fuel economy, figuring in, mo in motor racing, is you know anathema. And I understand their point of view. Yeah, uh, because uh, you know, I mean, people have been writing to say, "God Almighty, why does Formula One have to be green for Christ's sake?" The energy it uses to light it up, the energy that gets used is people driving to the racetrack to watch them. Well, what about the jumbo <laughs> jet that takes them there? Well, the uh, or the single flight across the Atlantic. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have a theory about this because I, I, I think we're, we're negative because we have a lot of people sit at home and watch 
that's on TV rather than go out and drive their cars. So that's got to be good. Well, it? that's true. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lateral yeah. thinking. I, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm certainly interested in 2014 rules as an engineer, and and I think when you see a little bit about the engines, I think you'll be stunned because the efficiency of them is beyond belief. And I think very few people realise that our, our, for our current Formula One engines are actually pretty damn efficient because power is efficiency. You know, we, we've, we've always sort of struggled to find power, but, but we find it through efficiency. And now we've turned that round and we're looking for efficiency even more. And they are incredibly impressive. Did we need to do it? Well, I think... Now, uh, as a team on a low budget, you know, it, it worries the hell out of me because these are expensive engines and it is going to be difficult for us to find the money to, to run these engines. But equally, you know, you, you just never know where these things are going to go. And I thought, and I still, I think I still think, that it was important that we were never seen uh, to be socially unacceptable in motorsport. Um, and I think if we'd done nothing, there would have been uh, a faction that would have said, this is wrong, you know, this is harming the planet, this is not good. And it's out and of step. With yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a bit like, you know, you wouldn't walk down King's Road wearing a fur coat now, would you? No. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, no, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't. <laughs> but... Uh, <coughs> Yeah, that's no, a good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, right. Can we? We're running out of time, but I, maybe we could just take Bruce Dewar's question here because it's relevant, and he's saying that might we see flywheel curves because of the much smaller fuel tank in 2014? I mean, at the moment, when when the fuel tank was increased in size post 2009, it, it was battery curves. Yeah, and and the rules are, are, are completely um, positioned for for batteries again. Um, now, the flywheel curves is an interesting proposition. Um, the energy density, in other words, you know, the amount of energy you can store for a given amount of weight, is, is pretty damn good on these these flywheels. And uh, you know, John Hilton at, at Flybrid, who's doing these systems now for, for road cars and long cars and everything, has done some incredible work. Um, they, they really are a very, very acceptable way of, uh, of storing regenerated energy. But the, the F1 rules have not gone in that direction. They've been, they've been directed at, at battery electrical systems. There's your answer, Bruce. Okay, I think we're just about out of time, I'm afraid. It's gone very quickly, hasn't it? Um, oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it's pure joy, actually, having a, um, an engineer here who's able to speak to ordinary people and make it so understandable. Thank you very, very much. Engineers are ordinary people as well, you know. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> um, just before we go, now I need to t tell everybody about our new subscription offer, but just glancing at these graphs here, which I've been sort of looking at occasionally, can, would you like to make some sort of prediction? I know you hate this sort of thing, but um, the top three in Melbourne from your from what you've seen in uh, Spain? Well, uh, I won't put them in order, but I think no, that the, the, the top three, I'm going to go, I think I have to go Vettel, Alonso and, and Hamilton. Okay, Vettel, Alonso and Hamilton, but not necessarily in that order. Mr. Aaron? I haven't really thought about it. Australia's always a funny race because at the start of the season they're all race rusty, funny things happen and you do get peculiar people popping What's up at the, the top end of the order. But the answer I will say 
Vettel Alonso. Mark Webber's got to finish on the podium in Australia one year. So yeah, Vettel Alonso Webber. Yeah, that's pretty good actually. I, I, I'd be I'd be very tempted to go with that. Um, certainly Vettel and Alonso, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll split the difference here I, and say you know either Lewis or Mark. They should be. They should be. One of them should be on the, on Bit the podium of a as well. Out, Nigel. Well, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of. Uh, uh, I mean, logically, you think, well, McLaren, you know, and you, you just never know with McLaren. They may. The thing may go to to uh, to Melbourne and fly. Mm. I think a lot um, will depend on temperatures as well. Yeah, you know, we well, were talking uh, about how difficult it was yeah. earlier, and and of course. One thing, if you remember from last year, was the, the Mercedes was always good when it was cold. You yeah, know, the, the yeah, win in China, true. cold that's conditions, true. the winter testing, and various other times. Yeah. Of course, there are so many parameters, but but readers uh, of motorsport like to talk about this down the pub. You know, it's yeah, fun. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we're just thing, having a stab. One at thing, it, actually, yeah. we should we should add. All, so one thing I think is that uh, a lot of people have been reckoning that uh, the Lewis is going to bury Nico this year, and I don't think he is. I'm not saying for a second Nick is going to be, have the beating of Lewis all the time, but I don't think it's going to be anything like as clear-cut as, as a lot of people am, think. Am I allowed to... I've got time to butt in and say that I've never particularly been con convinced by Nico Rosberg. You have butted in, and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I just... You know, the, he, he went well in form of the BMW, fine, but again, as I was saying earlier, fragmented junior categories, it's very hard to draw conclusions. Formula 3, he didn't do that well. He was an occasional race winner, front runner, but he wasn't anything special. GP2, ART had a very clear performance advantage. And in F1, he was four tenths slower than Mark Webber in 2006. And the Mercedes guys say that from mid-2011 onwards, Schumacher was their best race bet. We look forward to having the encyclopedia well. back on this podcast, don't we, Pat? There we are. <laughs> I mean, we, this is wonderful stuff. I love it. Where, how you store all this information, I have no idea. And the bits I mentioned, he was racing against Kazuki Nakajima and Alex Wurtz, which okay. wasn't, wasn't really a benchmark. Okay, good. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. And thank you very, very much indeed, Pat. Quickly, to tell you about our new subscription offer, you can save up to £30 against the standard cover price by taking out a subscription to Motorsport magazine right now. And all new subscribers will receive a free 300-piece jigsaw depicting Graham Hill leading his rivals through Eau Rouge oh, yeah, during the 1965 Belgian Grand Prix. To take advantage of this offer, visit motorsportmagazine.com uh, slash JS13 or call us on 0207 349 8472 or toll free from America this goes on and on uh, on 1 8628 quoting JS13 if you take out a subscription to our great magazine right now you can save up to 30 quid and get a fantastic motor racing jigsaw that sums it up doesn't it Thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Stand up,